and welcome to episode 1673 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangrass. Hello, Meg. Hello. Did I not tell all of the players just a couple days ago not to get hurt before spring training ended? I'm pretty sure I said so, and they did not take my advice. Players getting hurt. We're so close. It's just a week to go to opening day. You can make it. Don't try to rob any home runs or anything in the games that don't count. What a bummer that Aloy Jimenez is out for several months, possibly the season, with a ruptured pectoral tendon after reaching over the fence and sort of hanging there to try to bring back a home run ball. That's just a a real big loss for the White Sox and for baseball because he's a fun player and also for the left field positional power rankings, which you had to adjust on the fly (laughs) as they went up and then that news came out. Yeah, it um we did we did not redo all the tables because you know what? We just didn't do that. But mm-hmm. obviously Jason Martinez maintains our death charts in near real time cuz he's very good at his job and yes, when we published the left field's positional power rankings in the morning, the White Sox were third. Third because mm-hmm. Loy Jimenez is really good at baseball. And then we found out what had happened and they dropped to 27th. Yeah. It's really (laughs) rough. It's really rough. It's a big blow. Yeah. Yeah. And now you look back and the second guessing or first guessing about acquiring a big outfielder this offseason instead of Adam Eaton. Not that there's anything wrong with Adam Eaton, but, you know, it would be helpful to have another big bat in that lineup. It's a great lineup. So, They can perhaps weather that loss, but it is still a significant loss in a tight division race, probably. So that's going to be a blow, and and maybe they will replace him in some way. But you'd like to see him not make that kind of attempt, at least in a spring training game. And, you know, he's had a a lengthy injury history, and I kind of wonder how long his days for the field are. Rick Hahn said at some point in the future, we'll talk to him and talk through a plan about perhaps making some better decisions or what we are expecting of him going forward from a defensive standpoint. You don't want to take that out of him, that desire to make plays. It's uh, an admirable quality to want to make every play, but sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. So he's not a great defender as it is. I know it's something he was working on, but I wonder whether he ends up as a DH eventually. Although Andrew Vaughn kind (laughs) of has that spot on lockdown and maybe now he'll have to play some left field, which should be interesting. Yeah. And you, you look at some of the available options on the free agent market and, you know, like there's a reason that they're free agents and Aloy Jimenez is not, right? It's like, it's Josh Reddick, it's Yuana Cespedes, like that could be something, probably not. Mm-hmm. Puig, you know, Ryan Braun, who's probably done playing baseball. So it does put them in in a tricky spot. And like you said, you know, he was not particularly sterling in the outfield, but he is certainly, especially when you take into account his offense, like a better or, or certainly more proven option than what they have. And we have been recording while the the White Sox are playing uh, today on, on Friday, a day that Vaughn is meant to be starting in the outfield. So I guess we'll get a, a look at what that experiment kind of looks like and how it plays. But it's a lot to ask of, of any young prospect. You know, I think that we've been encouraged by Vaughn this spring, but adjusting to big league pitching is its own project. And then having to learn a, a new position on the fly is, is something else entirely. So we hope that like heals more quickly than we're yes. expecting, but it's it's certainly a loss for them. And I think we're going to preview the, the Padres on this episode. And mm-hmm. we certainly have extolled the depth of the Dodgers in the past. And and you're right, like Adam Eaton is he's fine. 
But I think that one thing that a lot of contending teams seem to do to distinguish themselves is accrue depth that you don't expect they're going to need. And then baseball happens and we all look around and we're like, oh, it's really good that they have that. So having surplus options there is certainly useful. And especially for a team like the White Sox who, you know, really want to win the Central and be a a playoff presence. So it's a bummer. (sighs) Yeah. And Nick Anderson with a partial tear of an elbow ligament that will take him out for a while. So everyone just uh, don't do anything for the next week. (laughs) Don't throw any pitches uh, if you can help it. Just, you know, don't jump over the wall. Don't jump into the wall. Just take it easy. Everyone make it to opening day so that we can have healthy rosters and no more injuries between now and then. If they start now, they might finish the Snyder Cup by the time opening day rolls around. (laughs) So it's uh, it's at least something to do. You know, I don't know if if one needs to have a a clear sense of what happened in King Kong Skull Island to appreciate (laughs) Kong versus Godzilla, but you could put that on. I I imagine I will. Ben, I can't wait to watch a dumb, dumb movie next week. Again, I'm going to drink some beers and watch King Kong, and I'm going to feel fantastic. <laughs> My Can't editor wait. was just talking to me about that movie and how he was not expecting to see it, but then he saw the trailer, and suddenly he's all in on oh, that yeah. movie. So, <laughs> To be clear, it's not going to be good. It is going to be excellent. <laughs> yes. All right. So as you mentioned, we've got the Padres preview in just a moment with Dennis Lynn, and then we've got the Rockies preview with Nick Groke. And the Rockies preview is as much about the front office and ownership as it is about the team itself. So it's sort of a therapy session for Rockies fans, hopefully, although I don't know that it will make them feel any better. But Nick wrote a really deeply researched and reported piece this week with Ken Rosenthal that made the rounds about Rockies dysfunction. So we talked about all of that before we got into the team. Just very briefly before we get to our two NL West previews today, just wanted to follow up on a few of the frequent responses that we have gotten to some of our discussions on our previous episode. 1672, we did emails. And one email that we talked about was the concept of a baseball thing that gets to be associated with a team or perhaps with a player inspired by one listener writing in to say that shutouts for the first 30 years or so of baseball history were commonly known as Chicago's because of the first shutout that was thrown in the first season of the National League being thrown by Chicago White Stockings pitcher Albert Spaulding. And so that just became known as Chicago's. And so we were trying to think of things like that. And it's hard to think on the fly while you're doing a podcast and a few omissions that people have pointed out. So I think probably the most common response is the Baltimore chop. Shame on us. Yeah, of course, we (laughs) should have thought of the Baltimore chop. And that's one that has persisted since, you know, the 19th century, since people were saying Chicago to describe shutouts. And we still say Baltimore chop, which is after those, you know, John McGraw Orioles teams that would just sort of slap the ball. And we're still saying that. I don't know that people do Baltimore chops all that often, but it's still part of the baseball lexicon. And that's sort of what we were saying about how it was easier to break into the lexicon in this way at that time, probably when there was less established history and fewer teams. And it's maybe harder to have these things form now, but that one has been with us for quite a long time. 
Many people wrote in to suggest the Maddox, the complete game shutout. Yes. Under 100 pitches associated with Greg Maddox. And that's really replaced the Chicago, I guess. It's a a subset of shutouts is the Maddox. But that's one that seems like it could last for a while. Although, again, going to be pretty rare to have shutouts at all and to have under 100 pitch ones. Although, really, these days, like you almost have to be under 100 pitches to get the complete game shutout or they will just pull you. So the Maddox is. Uh, a very good one. What else? Texas Leaguer. Texas Leaguer is one that came up. That one, I sort of knew the origin story, but didn't know the full origin story. And that one, again, also dates back from that era. So just reading from MLB.com here, a Texas Leaguer, of course, is a, a blooper that falls between the outfielders and infielders. And their definition is Texas Leaguer dates back to 1901 when a rookie named Ollie Pickering made his debut for the Cleveland Blues. Pickering had become a legend as a minor leaguer in the Texas League, and he was immediately placed atop Cleveland's lineup when he was called up. He even holds the honor of taking the first at bat in the history of the American League. Pickering proceeded to have one of the most fortunate starts to his career imaginable, as his first seven plate appearances all resulted in bloop singles. His teammates decided to name the play after him, and it's stuck ever since. So that's a good one, too. Oh, cool. I should note, though, that that explanation is somewhat disputed. The Dixon Baseball Dictionary includes the Pickering story, but dates that to either his National League debut in 1896 or his Texas League debut in 1892. The first usage is 1892, but not about Pickering. There's actually a whole page of potential etymologies, some of which have nothing to do with Pickering at all. But the Pickering story is pretty appealing. Yeah. Would you rather be famous for a bad thing? I mean, not like a problematic bad thing, but like an embarrassing bad thing or unknown to history? <laughs> like Lewis, the unknown yeah. pitcher we were talking about earlier well, this week. It's an odd combination of these concepts, right? Because we don't really yeah. know who he is. Right, exactly. Yeah. I guess, well, it depends what the bad thing is. (laughs) If it's a bad thing that reflects on my character. Right, not a problematic bad thing. Yeah, if it's just like a bad at baseball thing. Yeah. You know, if there are other things that balance that out, maybe then, you know, I guess it's nice to be remembered, right, for something. I might like that. I might like having a a claim to fame because, like, at least you made it to the major leagues, right? Like, if it's something that you were bad at baseball at that level, at least you got to that level. So I, I think I would go for that. I think I'm increasingly convinced that being famous is just really terrible. So I <laughs> guess I'd rather be forgotten. Like my well, family likes me. That's maybe enough. <laughs> we will all be forgotten eventually, even yeah. the famous among us. So what else? Uh, a couple other responses. Mendoza line, of course, is a, a good one if we're talking about a specific player. I guess that's a good example of what you're talking about, right? Would you want to be known for being the guy who hit around 200 every year? No, I would not want to be known. But you know what? I guess like to your point, the upside of that is that it's like you had a big league career long enough to name right. a thing after you. And we so often forget that like being in the big leagues for an extended stretch at all is like this incredible accomplishment that we should mm-hmm. all be in awe of. Because it's really, really hard and many people can't do it. So we should be nicer about that stuff, I think. Mm -hmm. And people suggested that maybe we could have, like, you know, if the Twins losing streak in the postseason continues, it could just be like a Twins is just to get swept out of the postseason or something that hasn't really happened yet. Hopefully for Twins fans, it won't. Or like a Red Sox coming back from down three in a best of seven or something. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I liked that one. Yeah, like no one calls that a Red Sox, really, I don't think. But you always hear about the Red Sox if a team is in that position. And Jacob deGrom, like, you know, losing a, a one nothing game, like sort of the Felix that right. you were talking about. Like deGrom has lost a lot of uh, really heartbreaking ones where he had no run support at all. So that's something that I could see getting associated with him. But maybe not because, like, he's just so good that he's just known for good things. And so I don't know if that's uh, what he'll be remembered for. I think Joe Pisnetsky wrote that he's got 19 career, no decisions, allowing zero or one runs, something like that. The listener wrote in to say that stat. So that's noteworthy for sure. And then there are things like where medical ailments get named after you or, you know, surgeries or something like Tommy John surgery or Lou Gehrig's disease or something that is not something you want. I mean, Tommy John surgery, I guess, is a, a kind of a cool thing to have named after you and to have been a trailblazer there. So One other one, the writer J.P. Hornstra wrote in to suggest the Coors Field game as a general term for a high-scoring game, a slugfest. And I wasn't sure about that one because I wasn't really aware of people applying Coors Field game to slugfests that don't take place at Coors Field. But J.P. says he heard it often on PCL Oklahoma City Dodgers broadcasts and also the Major League Dodgers broadcasters. So probably people in the West, people who play a lot of games at Coors Field. So I think that qualifies at least regionally. That's uh, sort of of a summary of some of the responses that we have received. Thank you to everyone for writing in about those. And also just briefly responses to our discussion of the animal that you would want on the field to distract players on defense. I think we didn't really get any angry emails from Goose fans. So I guess we didn't anger the Goose fans. Maybe there are no Goose fans and (laughs) that would make some sense. But people did write in to say that snakes, snakes could be a a potential option. Dig some holes in the outfield, not pits, just little holes that the snakes could slither out of when you want the defense to be unnerved. People are scared of snakes in some cases, although I have a brother-in-law who is very fond of them and Aww. has them around the house. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. There are some stories someone wrote in to uh, refer us to the Harvard legend that there were pigeons who were trained to uh, prank people. An MIT student supposedly, probably apocryphally, went out with like a black and white uniform every day during the off season and spread pigeon feed on the field so that when the football season started and the refs were on the field in their uniforms, all the pigeons would swarm the field, which is like probably something that didn't actually happen, but may have, and at least seems plausible that you could do something like that. And uh, someone wrote in to us about fighter planes as a possible distraction tactic because uh, apparently there was a game in Chicago at Wrigley Field in 2009 where there were a bunch of flybys by fighter jets and it was distracting to players on the field. I don't know if it would be worth like commissioning the Blue Angels or something to do some flybys. Who's going to get mad at you, right? Everyone likes a flyby. It's uh, patriotic in America. But if you could schedule the flybys so that they only (laughs) flew by... You know, like during the inning when you're hitting and you're distracting the pitcher, maybe that would be good. It was an air show, apparently. I'm reading from the Chicago Tribune, August 15th, 
2009, a squadron of jets sent a jolt through players and 41,619 fans Friday at Wrigley Field. In the second inning, just as Pittsburgh's Charlie Morton was ready to pitch to Ryan Terrio, five jets appeared over the stadium from behind home plate, exiting at center field before turning around and buzzing from left field to first base for an encore. They were so low, fans could see the yellow-orange glow from the afterburners as the jets practiced for this weekend's Chicago Air and Water Show. Randy Wells, who was on first base, scored Ontario's single, which came after he and Morton both took a long breather while the crowd went through emotional withdrawal. Morton gave up seven runs in one-plus innings on the way to a 17-2 loss and couldn't have been happy with the unexpected distraction, although he said everyone out there had to play through it, so I'm not looking at it as anything that affected my performance. And also Derek Lee, who was on the Cubs, said it was cool to watch but hard to hit when you're expecting some bomber to fly over your head. So this might be distracting to both batter and pitcher, though maybe less so if the batter is expecting it. But that's an option. Not literal birds, but just uh, actual mechanical birds in the sky. I guess that that's the more, because like the drone thing, they just stop play for (laughs) drones. Like they just stop play and kind of figure it out. But but yeah, or like, you know, the the ballpark where the Mariners play, that's a really awkward way of saying T-Mobile field, but I'm still not in the habit of saying (laughs) T-Mobile. But there are train tracks like right behind the the ballpark and you can hear them. Sometimes you can hear them on the broadcast and you can definitely hear them in the ballpark. So maybe you would want to schedule a lot more train depoting i don't know what the (laughs) word is here the verb is escaping me but maybe just you know train stuff and it's like well i don't know what can we do the the railway gotta ride the rails yeah there's also a game in 2009 in Cleveland where there was a, a walk-off because there was a flock of seagulls on the field and Coco Crisp was out there. That was the year he was with the Royals, so Cleveland was batting and the ball bounced off a bird. I assume the bird was okay. It was not a Randy Johnson situation, but he was unable to field the ball. So there ended up being a, a walk-off hit there. So not midges, but seagulls. So that's the plan in action. If you could train a flock of seagulls to park themselves there only at the perfect time. And I think the last thing that I have to relay on this subject, there's a story in the BBC on Friday about Rhea birds in England. And Rhea birds are sort of like smaller ostriches, basically. And here's what the BBC story says. Up to 20 Rhea birds that have been running around a housing state will be sent to an animal reserve when captured, police said. The unusual site has been spotted at Maple Cross, close to the M25, Hertfordshire, police said. The force was working with Three Rivers District Council and highways teams to come up with a plan. Police said they had tried to identify owners, but concluded the flightless birds were effectively wild. (laughs) (gasps) Terrific. It's really, that's really great. But there's like a picture of of meat from these birds in their Wikipedia. Why is that there? (laughs) Don't look, Ben. I hope that's not what happens to these 20 rhea birds. I think they've been saved. I think that they have been saved. You know, you look at these birds and you're like, yeah, I get that like birds and dinosaurs are, you know, on the same like uh, evolutionary link eventually because these look like the, what are the ones that run after them in Jurassic Park? Gallimimuses? Gallimimusi? Gala? Anyway, they're dinosaurs. These are clearly descended from dinosaurs. Yes. And they're flightless, so not ideal for ballpark gamesmanship. So that's all I've got on those topics. Thanks to everyone for writing in, and we will follow up as needed. We will now take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Dennis about the Padres, followed by Nick on the Rockets.
right, it is time to talk about the San Diego Padres, or at least to preview the Padres season. It seems like we're talking about the Padres all the time these days. Anyway, we are joined now by Dennis Lynn, who covers the Padres for The Athletic. Hello, Dennis. Hi, thanks for having me. So it's been two years since we had you on to do the Padres preview. We had you on in 2019, and what a difference two years makes in this case. The hot talent lava that Scott Boris foretold is flowing fast these days. So I guess my first big picture question is how and why have the Padres been as aggressive as they have been in contrast to so many other teams? Because it really does seem like, you know, other teams are trading away their young franchise players instead of extending them. The Padres are extending them. Other teams are trading away their aces. The Padres are acquiring their aces. And they're in San Diego. It's not a major media market, although they sort of have it to themselves. And they're not totally breaking the bank because they have this young, inexpensive core, but they still do have a top 10 payroll. So, What is it about, I suppose, the Padres' ownership group? We know that A.J. Preller is wired that way to be aggressive, but why has he been given the go-ahead to do that at a time when so many other franchises seem to be standing pat or cutting back? Well, I think you just alluded to it with Preller, but if you look even higher than A.J. Preller, Peter Seidler, who in November became the lead owner, control owner. He had been the lead investor all along since he bought the team in 2012. He's uh, he's a very motivated owner. He's proven he's willing to spend money. And as he's taken over, over the offseason, you've noticed that that has coincided with uh, this crazy offseason, or this crazy winter of deals that Preller pulled off. So he's got the backing of an owner who's um, very on the same page in tune with what he wants to do. And Seidler should be noted. Uh, not all people know this, although it's been out there that he is the nephew of Peter O'Malley, former owner of the Dodgers. So he's Mm -hmm. seen how World Series can change uh, a city. I know Los Angeles is obviously much different than San Diego, but he's seen how a uh, well-run organization has functioned. So there's, uh, there's a lot of, I guess, again, motivation at the very top. We'll get into some of the acquisitions that the Padres made and some of the extensions they issued, but I think maybe the place to start is to talk about how they see all of the different pieces that they've brought together fitting, because it seemed like every other week there was a Padres signing. I joked at one point that surely they were being granted additional roster spots to accommodate all of the guys that they had. So they they find themselves with a couple of stalwarts who aren't going to move around, right? They have Tatis and Machado. They have Hosmer at first, but they also brought in Hassan Kim. They re-signed Jerkson Profar. They have guys like Jorge Mateo. They have Jake Cronenworth. So how do you see them sort of aligning all of these pieces and guaranteeing that the guys that they like so much are getting playing time? Yeah, it's it's a good question and not to bring up the Dodgers again too much, but um I think that's going to be a theme this year them <laughs> trying to compete with the Dodgers, but they they've looked at, you know, what the Dodgers have done with their depth, which is unrivaled in Major League Baseball and they've tried to do that with as you mentioned bringing in Hassan Kim who can uh, play uh, most of the out- infield positions and is now being tested in the outfield to see if he can be a potential future super utility guy in that way. Obviously, he'll have to hit to uh, be a super utility guy, but you know, he he does have athleticism and defensive versatility, which is uh, two of the main traits the Dodgers have kind of ridden to their success over the last several years. And uh, Jerickson Profar, re-signing him, uh, was big for them. And even a guy like Jorge Mateo has outfield, middle infield flexibility. So if you look at all those pieces, yeah, if there's assuming there's no universal DH this year, that might be a little harder to spread everything out. But uh, going from 60 games to 162, they think they'll be able to 
you know, do that, uh, rest guys and, uh, you know, move, uh, move some playing time around. So it's going to be an interesting puzzle that they're going to have to put together. But I think, um, yeah, the, uh, they do have a few cornerstones, everyday guys in place, and then they're going to have to figure out the rest of it. Yeah, well, while we're on the subject of Kim, I wanted to ask about him because he's one of the players I've been most excited to see just based on his track record in the KPO. Seems like he was a really valuable and really dynamic player there with a great power speed combination. And the path to playing time is a little bit uncertain, as you said. But also, he has had sort of a rough spring training offensively. He's got about a 400 OPS, and there will always be doubts and concerns when a player is coming over from a different league. So do the Padres have any of those concerns, or is this just something that we should write off because it's spring training? You know, what have you heard or what have you observed about how his skills and performance in Korea will translate to MLB? I do think the initial decision to give him four years and $28 million guaranteed, uh, that wasn't a unanimous decision for the Padres, um, although I think that's a sign of a healthy organization, you could argue, or just any organization in general, that not everyone is always 100% on board with every single move. But they, they did like him a lot. They had they have John Ho Park in their front office advising them. So, uh, you know, he, he obviously knows uh, the, the culture, you know, differences between Korea and the U.S. and the uh and the um, you know challenges it takes to adjust, but yeah, they're they're not too concerned right now just because they're kind of grading him on a curve this spring. Uh, you know, huge time zone difference uh, between Korea and Arizona in spring training, and uh, Korea only has one time zone, so that's something he's going to have to adjust to when he starts traveling to uh, all these cities in this uh, much larger country that is the United States. Uh, so. They're, they're mindful of those things, but they've been uh, pretty encouraged behind the scenes by his progress, just acclimating to the U.S., learning a new language. His defense is very solid at second base, which is you know a place he might get quite a bit of time, although Jake Cronenworth's pretty locked in right now, and Kim's going to have to, again, prove that he can hit major league pitching. But they're, uh, they think that he is athletic enough and is savvy enough, uh, has enough aptitude to you know eventually make that jump to that adjustment against major league pitching. It's just going to take some time right now. I want to ask about a couple of the position players who either have been recently injured or are currently injured now. And I guess we can start with Tommy Pham, who had had a pretty bad 2020 and then obviously had this terrible uh, stabbing incident in the offseason. I'm curious how he has looked to you so far in spring and sort of what the club's expectations are for his performance. He's obviously going to hit the free agent market after this season. And then I wonder if we can get an update on Austin Nola and uh, what his timetable for return might be with the fractured finger he suffered. Yeah, Tommy Pham has had a very eventful Padres tenure, including off yeah, the geez. field. <laughs> Early in spring training, he said he couldn't, he still couldn't really squat or you know deadlift since there's a you know like a hundred something stitches across his lower back, and uh, exercises like that require uh, you to use your lower back. And he also said uh, he's a very candid person as. He's uh, you guys might have heard that he was about 80% physically. Uh, he didn't really specify what that all meant. And this was in February when he said that. But yeah, he's he's come around um, recently. I think a lot of his, you might have seen that he started off very slow in the Cactus League. A lot of his early struggles were due to the fact that he's been trying out a lot of different pairs of contact lenses. He has an eye condition that's been uh, well documented. Uh, and he uses spring training to uh, you know find out which contact lenses work best for him. So I guess he's uh, he settled on a pair or two that you know seem to work better, and he's seen the ball better. So I think more so than the uh, the physical 
injury stuff, it's uh, been for him seeing the ball, but staying healthy is going to be, um, you know, a question mark for him all season since, you know, given his recent injury history. But I think it is encouraging for the Padres that he is for the first time in his Padres tenure, seemingly uh, mostly healthy and seeing the ball well. So they're, uh, they're going to be counting on him. Uh, as far as Austin Nola goes, he uh, fractured middle finger on his catching hand, um, foul tip, which is actually the same thing that happened to him last September after he was traded. He uh, fouled a ball off his left foot, fractured it, and uh, continued to play with it. Actually didn't tell his own teammates about it because he didn't want to, uh, I guess, make excuses as the new guy um, in a pennant chase or a division or a playoff chase um, at the time. Uh, but he uh, he's he's a pretty tough guy, as that you know illustrates. And he's been, as of this recording, uh, he's been you know taking swings. Um, I guess the the main question is whether he can wrap that finger around the bat uh, without any pain or having to alter his swing. So given that there's a 162-game season coming up, I think they might take it slow opening day, start him on the IL, but uh, I wouldn't rule him out since um, the guy played with a fractured foot last September and last October in the playoffs. So we all held our breaths the other day when Fernando Tatis Jr. walked off the field with the trainer. Seems like we can all exhale that he's going to be okay, but it has come to light or at least has been better publicized that there is some slight underlying shoulder issue here that may have been at fault. So clearly this is not something that concerned the Padres a whole lot since they just signed him to a 14-year deal. But what do we know about this issue or about the likelihood that it could affect him in the future? Not a whole lot other than, other than the Padres are claiming they're very unconcerned that they knew all about this when they signed him to that 14-year extension. Uh, Jace Tingler said he didn't know the med- medical term for what he's uh, dealt with the last uh, several years, it sounds like, going back to the minors. But he just said, um, you know, he was backhanding a ball, had shortstop, felt something kind of pinched there and uh, decided to be extra cautious since it's a spring training game, which is an interesting choice of words because, um, you know, Tatis is the same guy who uh, tagged up from third third base in a spring training game just a couple weeks ago and slid headfirst into home. And from what I understand, he kind of re-aggravated that injury by doing that, that shoulder injury. So that's uh, it's definitely going to be something to monitor with him, although the Padres again claim they're that he's fine and he did hit a home run in his first game back. So I guess he is, you know, mostly fine. But I guess this is just an example of you know, something that came to light that players deal with uh, from time to time. Uh, I'm sure we don't know about 99% of the little um, injuries. And hopefully for Fernando, it's a little injury that players, you know, try to manage throughout the course of a long season. But uh, for now, the Padres seem uh, totally okay with where he's at. And they just hope he doesn't slide headfirst to home too much. One of the sort of interesting things about the shortened season last year, and this wasn't something that persisted, but we saw Eric Hosmer really try to elevate the ball more. His average launch ankle increased, and then it started to dip closer to um, his sort of famous ground ball ways. I'm curious what you saw in terms of maybe a change in approach that didn't persist and what he is trying to do in that regard this year, because obviously, you know, his contract is not what I think the Padres hoped it would be. And then there was this glimmer of promise, and I'm curious what we are going to see from him in 2020. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people are really curious as well, especially to see what he can do over a full season after he did make some changes last season. And those changes weren't drastic as far as I understand. Um, nothing too uh, complicated with the swing. It's just 
mainly about, uh, he said this himself, being a little more selective about which pitches he tried to drive, uh, maybe being a little more aggressive out front of the plate. So it wasn't so much a huge swing change as maybe a slight approach and uh, slight difference in selectivity and uh, looking at which pitches he could could drive. Because uh, I think in the past, there's been a lot of pitches that he could get to. But with, uh, you know, the way his swing works, uh, he would just hit it into the ground, which, uh, you know, isn't very helpful for a slow-footed first baseman. But no, he uh, he did show some open-mindedness to changing a lot of things. And from what I understand, he's also been very open-minded to embracing stuff like KVEST technology and some of the new stuff recently. So that's that's encouraging for the Padres. But I, I think, yeah, a lot of people are curious to see if he can um, sustain that temporary uptick um, from last season. And he was also, um, it should be noted, uh, dealing with some uh, pretty serious stomach issues last season that kept him out. So, And he also broke a finger like Austin Nola did recently um, back last summer. So that kind of slowed him down. Um, but I think they're they're the mind that, you know, offensively, he's going to be at least average for a first baseman. At least that's the hope. Uh, and I think defensively, that might be the bigger, bigger concern because this spring you've seen uh, – some steps back in that that regard that, you know, defensively, he's maybe not the same guy he was when he was winning four gold gloves. But, uh, you know, that's something they can uh, deal with as it comes. And they've always got Jay Cronenworth, who's <laughs> like an 80-grade 80 80 defender out at first base, um, despite the fact that before last summer, he hadn't really played the position since college. Well, we've talked about Pham. We've talked about Noah. We've talked about Hosmer. I guess there's really only one person who is in his 30s in this lineup, which is pretty young. That's Will Myers, who was one of the more pleasant surprises for the Padres last season. He was someone who seemed to be on the trade block if anyone would even be interested in him. Didn't seem like he would necessarily be playing an important part on these new, young, great Padres teams. And then he came out and was uh, maybe their best hitter or very close to being their best hitter last year. And it's 55 games, of course. But what can you tell us about what, if anything, he did differently and how likely that sort of season is to sustain itself. He's always in the past been kind of a tinkerer when things, especially when things weren't going well at the plate, which was a lot, very often for him. He had a very inconsistent up and down career until last season. And I think he uh, he found some things where he felt like his approach, regardless of the results, uh, was something more to sticking with. And he's constantly credited hitting coach Damian Easley, who was the you know lead hitting instructor last season for the first time with, you know, helping him instill that mentality or just maintain it. And it seems like it worked for him last season. So he's going to try to carry it over this season and not to, not worry too much about temporary slumps and all that. I know that's easy to say, uh, especially in a 60 game season. And now that's going to be definitely tested. But seems like he's in a good spot as far as also not having to kind of carry this lineup, which he did temporarily in 2016. Uh, obviously, that's far removed from now where they have a much deeper lineup. But he just seems like he's in a good place where he can just focus on uh, trying to be a productive bat and, you know, kind of toward the middle or bottom of the order in some cases, because this is the deepest lineup on paper the Padres have ever had. So they, they don't need him to carry him, carry them uh, by any means. But at the same time, if you look at the outfield, Tommy Pham, obviously with his, you know, injury risk there and Trent Grisham has only played less than a full season in the majors, still needs to prove himself. Uh, another guy who's trying to come back from minor injury right now, Will Myers is going to be really important. Like you said, Ben, he, uh, yeah, he got a, I think, a stray 10th place MVP vote last season. So if he can uh, reapproach that, that's going to be uh, really big for the Padres. 
can't believe that we're almost 20 minutes in and we haven't talked about the Padres pitching in any length at all. But before we do, I actually want to talk about some of the guys who they didn't have to give up in order to acquire guys like Darvish and Snell and Musgrove. They pulled off this incredible thing where they got better but didn't give up any of their top prospects. The Padres farm system has been this crown jewel for them for a long time. I know that some of their guys got work at the alternate site and in Instructs, but I'm curious for an organization that has relied so heavily on its prospect depth, either to contribute at the major league level or to prove uh, useful when acquiring other big league talent, what their approach to player development was in a season like last year where there wasn't a minor league season and they weren't able to get everybody in on the complex level to get work. So for the guys who, especially for the guys who were away from sort of the watchful eye of the organization, how did they try to help them make sure that 2020 wasn't a completely lost year? I don't think it was drastically different from other organizations and how they handled that. Uh, there were, you know, weekly Zooms. You know, honestly, not a, lot, not a whole lot they could do for quite a few of the guys who weren't at the alternate site. But yeah, they they, they just tried to stay on top of it as best they could. And, you know, AJ Preller, and I know this past offseason, visited some guys in the offseason when uh, things started opening up a little more uh, COVID-wise. But as far as the alternate site guys, they did bring quite a few um, very young, uh, very highly thought of prospects to uh, University of San Diego, which is where their alternate site was last summer. Um, for example, CJ Abrams, I think, might have been uh, one of their top position player performers at the entire alternate site, including you know major leaguers and high minors guys. And Ryan Weathers was a guy who really stood out at the alternate site leading to his uh, his call up during the postseason against the Dodgers and the NLDS. So they they found ways to uh, get their best coordinators and best coaches in the organization around those guys as far as the rest of the organization I think it's uh you know I think we'll all find out how much of a level playing field that was as far as they're not being a playing field for every organization but they feel pretty good about the guys that they brought to uh, the alternate site and a lot of those guys have taken steps forward this spring so uh, if you're talking about the very upper end of the farm system it's still looking pretty good because as you said they uh, they didn't really give up too many of their top prospects i think uh, luis patino is probably the only exception there yeah, and Baseball America's Kyle Glazer had the numbers in an article earlier this week where he pointed out that in the past 17 months, the Padres have traded 29 prospects and 13 young major leaguers who had recently graduated from their farm system, so 42 players over you know not a very long period of time at all. He compared that to the Astros trading 44 such players, but that was over a period of five years as they were getting better, and with the Padres, it's more like a year and a half, even less. And clearly, A.J. Preller does not waste time and uh, does not mind making a flurry of moves in a short span of time. But even after doing that, they still have the most prospects on the Baseball America Top 100. The system is still strong, you know, maybe a little less deep than it used to be, but they kept those high-end guys. But how is it that they were able to amass so much depth that they could trade 42 young players like that? and still have a great young team at the major league level and also a bunch of great top prospects. I mean, that was supposed to be Preller's strength, right? Scouting and talent acquisition at the amateur level. But how have they gone about that exactly? I think the short answer is there are a few guys in the system, and this has been true in the past too, that Preller really, really likes. And some other guys, he's just like, eh, I could... Uh... I could do without them because I feel really, really strongly about this guy. Um, obviously, that goes for for every GM and every organization. But 
to to answer the question about depth, I think you have to look back to the summer of 2016 when they dropped $80 million, including overage fees on the uh, international class that summer. And that was the last summer teams could do that. Mm-hmm. So they took advantage of that window. Um, now it's uh, it's debatable whether that's returned much for them, but they did get in that class. Luis Patino, who, like we mentioned, was traded in the offseason for, for Blake Snell. They got Adrian Morahone, who looks like he might be a member of the opening day rotation. And just two hits like that, uh, you know, that might be enough surplus value right there to cover the $80 million expen- expenditure that they laid out four years ago or five years ago now. They've just been pretty methodical since that rebuild started really in 2016 about just uh, putting rule five picks on the roster for a time. Uh, yeah. Not overtly tanking, but I think tanking in, in, in ways like that where they could kind of say, you know, we're trying to compete, but we're also very, um, very aware that, you know, the future 2020, 2021 is what we have in mind. So they they did that for several years. And then, you know, this offseason and this, you know, past trade deadline when a lot of teams were lamenting pandemic finances and the Padres had cornerstones in place like Tatis and Machado who are blocking some good prospects. They they took advantage of the, the market and they were the first movers, I guess, in a sense. And they uh, they traded a lot of young, high upside prospect talent that they, you know, didn't value that highly internally in, in most cases for uh for guys making decent amount of money at the major league level. So I think that the market is a huge factor here in terms of timing. I think, um, you know, if not for the pandemic, maybe um, 2020 would have been a borderline playoff or a wild card season for the Padres, but maybe not to the extent that it was last summer. Let's talk about that rotation for a moment. I'm curious what sort of as the spring has unfolded, what the approach to Blake Snell has been and you expect will be in 2021. He, you know, with this shortened season, only made 11 starts last year, but only four of those uh, did he pitch into the sixth inning. We all watched his his famous early exit from the postseason last year. So how deep do you think the Padres are really going to let him go on average and what do you expect from him? I think early on, it's going to be a gradual buildup as it will be for every starter. But in his particular case, he just hasn't thrown a lot of innings uh, for the reasons uh, you just mentioned, Meg. So they're not going to accelerate him from zero to 60 in a sense. And it's probably not going to be this season that he's going to hit 200 innings. Uh, that's you know definitely for sure. Uh, but they, they, they will um, let him go deeper than the Rays. I think any team would let Blake Snell go deeper than the Rays did just based on yeah. <laughs> how uh, how pitching staffs work and different teams and you know different philosophies. But the Padres are very mindful of the fact that he just hasn't had a lot of mileage on his arm and they don't want to ramp him up too quickly knowing you know how how big he could be to their title hopes if he does pan out like they hope. So there there's going to be a buildup. I think even Snell has said you know right off the bat you're probably not going to see me go in seven innings but uh, that's the eventual hope, and he's very eager to prove that he can do it because he's never really gotten the chance, uh, especially in Tampa Bay, and now he's going to be in the same division as the Dodgers. So there's going to be a lot of motivation personally for him to prove he can be that guy in the uh, at the front or near the front of the rotation who's going seven innings. But I think that's going to be an eventual thing, a gradual thing, and not something uh, we'll see until possibly you know middle part of 2021 or maybe even more likely 2022. So Denelson Lamette pitched on Wednesday briefly. There's still some concern as he eases back into things after the elbow scare. So is there much worry still that this is something that could plague him throughout the season? What's his timeline for returning to the roster? 
Yeah, given his history, there has to be concern still, even though he uh, he looked good in his spring debut, his one inning. But yeah, I mean, there's been people around baseball predicting that this is going to be pretty short-lived for him before he has to relent to another Tommy John surgery. But for right now, they... Uh, they don't seem to think uh, he's got any significant ligament damage from from his injury last September, and they're just building up him up very de- deliberately and slowly. I don't know if we all knew coming into spring training that he was going to be slow played to this extent. Um, at this rate, I mean, it looks like he might be making his debut if they continue to build him up uh, this slowly in maybe late April. But they're they're keeping the big picture in mind, especially with uh, an arm like his that it's more important to have him in September and potentially October uh, versus April when the uh, schedule is relatively easy. And again, the uh, schedule is going back to 162 games. So um, I don't know what the innings target for him is. I think that's a play it by ear kind of thing for every pitcher really but for for him i don't think you're going to see him throwing 150 innings this season after 70 and uh and an elbow related injury that we're still not quite really um aware of the specifics on so uh i think starting him in late april makes sense from that perspective and there might even be um, occasions to rest him for brief stretches during the season but they're they're mostly focused on having him for september and potentially october so i think that's why you're seeing him slow played to the extent that he has been Maybe we can stick with a, another young pitcher, one who hasn't made his debut yet. I'm curious what the current read is on Mackenzie Gore. He had only pitched to double A in 2019, so his absence from the big league roster last year isn't totally surprising, but given some of the injuries that the team sustained to the rotation late and the sort of cobbled together nature of some of their playoff appearances, it was a little surprising to not see him get the nod when guys like Patino did. So what is the org's current thinking on Gore, and when do you think we might see him in the big leagues last summer was pretty interesting for him because i think you know this might be a bit of a cop-out explanation in some cases but he he was a guy who really thrived off actual like game competition and having those real life settings to to work in and he's got a very complicated delivery as uh, i think a lot of people have seen with the the high leg kick uh, pretty much all the way to his head or shoulders and a lot of moving parts there. So he, he got out of sync definitely at the off, alternate side and even earlier during summer camp during the shutdown. Uh, and I think there might have been some bad habits he picked up along the way. And, you know, it just never really got on track to the point that they felt really, really serious about bringing him up. Although I think if they had advanced to the uh, the next round of the playoffs and somehow gone past the Dodgers, you probably would have seen him at that point, um, given the injuries back then to Mike Clevenger and Lament. Um, but, you know, this this spring, uh, if you look at from that lens, these are his first real competitive games in over a year, uh, basically. So it's been it's been a little spotty, although his delivery uh, looks much better than it sounded. Uh, we, we didn't really get any visual on Mackenzie Gore at the alternate site last summer, but it sounds like his delivery is in much better condition than it was back then. It's just uh, command is still a very big issue for him. He's like you said, he's only uh, you know been in Double A for a little bit, and uh, he could still use quite a bit of polishing. But I think um, just given the progress that they've seen this spring from from last summer, there's there's a good chance that they're going to use him pretty early in the season. I don't think opening day is uh, is likely for him. Uh, I think Adrian Morhone is ahead of him in that regard, and even Ryan Weathers. Uh, but I think uh, given the fact that they'll need arms and innings, and he's he's looked better and his deliveries look better, um, he's got stuff to get major league hitters out right now if he can iron those out over the next week or two or three uh, i think there's a very good chance we see him possibly in april 
What about Chris Paddock, whose profile has really sort of shrunk in the last year, it seems like. We were talking about him all the time during his exciting rookie season. Sophomore season didn't go so great, and by the time the playoffs rolled around, it seemed like the Padres were reluctant to give him a prominent role. But he will presumably be back in the rotation to start the season, so... Are there hopes that they've identified what went wrong last year and that he can sort of resume the trajectory that he was on in 2019? It all starts with the fastball for for Paddock. Uh, He probably throws more fastballs than, I don't know, 90% of starters in the league. And he's always been known for his command. And last season, the fastball movement and the command were both a little off for him. So that caused uh, probably most of his problems. Uh, They feel like they took steps in the offseason to address a lot of that. Uh, he's never been a high spin guy or a guy who really spins a breaking ball well, but they also worked on a cutter and uh, and his curveball, which was very much a work in progress last season. And I think um, just the nature of last season being so short probably magnified a lot of those struggles for him, but he definitely, uh, no doubt, struggled. Um, so they're, they're very interested to see what he can do now that he's uh, more slotted at the back of the rotation rather than the front of it. Um, I think it's kind of similar in this case to Will Myers that uh, there's going to be less pressure on him, but I think um, they're, they're very optimistic that even last season, maybe if given more time, he would have started to turn things around. But uh, last season definitely was eye-opening for Paddock, who's never really struggled at any level or hadn't until last season. So that's, that's going to be another major storyline to follow. Uh, interesting side note, he and Mackenzie Gore were roommates last summer and they're both not having the greatest summer. So maybe they should uh, switch up the housing assignments when Mackenzie gets to San Diego. <laughs> one of the, the highlights for the team last year, they had many highlights, so it feels weird to phrase it that way. But one of the highlights was the performance of their bullpen. There have been some changes there. They've added Mark Melanson and Kona Kello came over, but they also lost Kirby Yates, which I'm sure feels less sad for them, although is very sad for Blue Jays fans and Trevor Rosenthal. So how do you see this unit coming together? They have a couple of guys with closing experience. So how do you think it's going to shake out in high leverage situations and just generally? That's a good question. I think it's one of the main questions they have to answer who really locks down the back end of the ballpen. Right now, it looks like Emilio Pagan is the uh, current front runner. He he did it for Tampa Bay a couple years ago. Uh, they did it pretty well, but he's he's not that established even as a 29 year old. But uh, I think they're of the mind that last season he was dealing with some injury stuff. He was pitching through that he didn't really want to go on the aisle for uh, for a while, uh, knowing how taxed the bullpen was at the time. And now he's fully healthy, and you got a glimpse of it after he came back from a short stint last summer on the IL that uh, you know his fastball seemed to be back, and it has been back uh, this spring. So he's the uh, the front runner there. Although I wouldn't pencil him in for like forty save opportunities or anything like that, just uh, based on the nature of uh, this upcoming season and how long it's going to be. I think Drew Pomerantz is going to be an option at times, although they they might like him more in a you know kind of a multi capacity role just because he's so valuable against so many different types of hitters. And aside from that, yeah, Melanson and Keller are definitely options um, for the end of the game. But I think Pagan, it's kind of his job to lose right now. I just think uh, it's very possible that they're going to have to use all those guys in the ninth inning eventually, or just in spurts. But one guy I would uh, keep an eye on is Pierce Johnson. He had a very successful um, season last year coming back from Japan. And then Austin Austin Adams is another option, although he needs to get healthy as well. But they they have a few options back there. It's just a a matter of, you know, one one guy really emerging. And I think they would really prefer for one guy to emerge um, as the... uh, primary closer for for them because you've seen in the past that um, 
that works for teams like the Rays. It doesn't necessarily work for most teams. Padres are in this unique position among MLB teams in that they have their city to themselves. They're not competing with another big four sports franchise. I guess Oakland is technically in the same boat, but is in the Bay Area, of course. So you've got the Giants right there. So how much does that play into the Padres being willing to spend and be aggressive and what do you think that might mean for their fan base, both now and in the future, that they have the city to themselves in a way that most other teams don't, and they also have this young, exciting, dynamic, talented team? I guess it's kind of hard to gauge whether San Diego is feeling Padres fever you know, during a pandemic when no one was able to go to the games. But as people start coming back into ballparks, as we all start being out and about again, hopefully a little later this year, do you think that will be different in a way than it is for many other teams? I mean, can the Padres sort of take over the city in a way that is tough to do in a lot of other markets? Yeah, th- this is uh, this is a question that's, um, I guess, it's kind of hard to quantify, right? Because yeah. especially for us on the outside, on the outside of the team, we don't have access to their internal numbers. But I think it's unquestionable that the you know, Chargers leaving has helped them. I think probably to a lesser extent than a lot of people might assume, but just business-wise, there's less competition for eyeballs in this market, and there's more focus on them. And uh, it's something that you know Peter Seiler, the owner, has been uh, very very cognizant of. He's spoken about it, um, especially when the Chargers left. That that he's seen in other markets when a team leaves, it kind of like this this weird cloud hangs over city, and uh, you know that was something he was very aware of, and he wanted to probably take advantage of it. They've uh, they've picked up a lot of the I think. <laughs> local business things that the Chargers left behind. But yeah, I think uh, with them being the only team in town and now uh, on paper, at least a very good team, uh, there is a lot of excitement. They, uh, they're they seeing like record season ticket sales um, and a lot of those people won't be able to get into the ballpark right away uh, given limited capacity. But just the um, even the reach they have now in Asia with Yu Darvish and Hassan Kim, that's, that's new for them too. So I think um, being the only team in town has probably helped them Overall, I don't know by by how much, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely a narrative that's been uh, pushed in the city that they are the only team, and San Diego's never had a major sports championship, so there's there's a lot of potential for them to make a lot of money if they if they do win, and I think that was part of Siler's uh, calculated risk um, going all in like he did this off season because if this if this does work out, they stand to make a lot of money in the long term. Well, I'm just scanning the Padres depth chart to see, is there anyone that we should have asked about that we didn't, which with a lot of teams, when we do these previews, you sort of have to stretch and it's like, well, I guess I could ask about this guy, but with the Padres, it's, I could ask a question about almost everyone. It seems like it's just such an interesting team, but two players that we didn't really touch on at length also happen to be two players that you just paired together in your most recent article for The Athletic which is headlined Jake Cronenworth and Trent Grisham are underrated keys to the Padres success. So you mentioned earlier that Cronenworth is a a great defender at first and very versatile, but how about the bat? Because I think that was maybe better than expected last year and did tail off late in the season. And then Grisham, I mean, my goodness, the the Grisham-Zach Davies trade could not have worked out better for the Padres in year one, I would say. And Grisham, speaking of 80 gloves, I mean, he is uh, right up there with any other outfielder in the majors and also hit well. So he's maybe a player who doesn't get quite the publicity of some of the higher profile players. But in terms of talent and promise, it seems like he's up there with almost anyone. 
Yeah, and I think the point of that article was just to reemphasize that they were able to do some of these things that they've done right recently, the the bigger blockbuster moves, because they got really affordable, cheap young guys and Cronenworth and Grisham that so far have panned out. Of course, they have to do it over a full season now, and that's going to be a test. But if you just look at some of the you know, rate statistics and stack cast numbers from last season, both guys showed very well. And Cronenworth, although he did drop off, he was still making hard contact late last season probably getting a little unlucky and he he really you know opened some eyes maybe even the Padres in that he's uh he's a legitimate everyday option whether that's you know starting at one position or moving around because like I said he's he's very very good at first base uh, I remember when I think it was AJ Pollock after facing him for the first time he said after the game I was just trying not to hit it to that Jake Cronenworth guy <laughs> at that time no one knew who he was and now people know who he is so uh it's gonna be interesting to see how he responds in year two but he's he's pretty locked in for right now at second base and uh, again he can move around the field which is really valuable especially the left-handed hitter and in Grisham's case um, the Padres almost or they would have drafted him in 2015 in the first round if they hadn't signed James Shields that previous offseason and given up their first rounder although I think they're they're very happy with the way things turned out because Shields obviously turned into a, a decent shortstop but as far as Grisham goes they had a lot of history with him they felt very confident about his skill set, even buying high on him, so to speak, after he uh, had a huge triple A season for the Brewers. And I know he had that that famous gaffe in the playoffs against the Nationals, but they still felt very strongly about him. So this didn't come out of nowhere for them, although I think the uh, the defense and the speed has even surprised uh, the Potters themselves. So if he can uh, stay injury free, uh, the hamstring, which is something that he's sidelined with right now, is something that he's apparently dealt with, kind of like Tatis with his shoulder in past years. He's going to be a very key fixture, I would say, of their lineup for, for years to come. And even if C.J. Abrams comes up and say, um, say plays center field, uh, Grisham has the kind of bat it looks like to profile in a corner pretty well. And you got Tommy Pham and Will Myers, who are in their 30s, and Pham's going to be a free agent. So I think Grisham's going to be a big piece of what they do for the foreseeable future. One guy we haven't asked you about is Jace Tingler, who had his first season as a manager last year. He sort of perhaps most famously got involved in the Fernando Tatis Grand Slam up seven runs dust up, though he later walked back some of the remarks that indicated he thought Tatis shouldn't have swung. And so it doesn't seem like that was too big of a deal. But I'm curious just generally how the first year went for him and maybe some of the things that he learned in that you know 60 game stretch. Well, it was interesting considering his uh, predecessor, Andy Green, was someone AJ Preller had never met before he hired Green. And toward the end, things got pretty bad internally. They they weren't on the same page as far as philosophy and what they wanted to do. I think Preller probably moved some prospects to the majors before uh, Green was ready for them and just didn't feel like this was the best way to go about building a sustainable contender. But obviously, um, you know, he's out now and Jace Tingler is someone that uh, some people have described as one of A.J. Preller's best friends over the years in baseball. So they're, they definitely seem in lockstep. So that's made things easier uh, on that front for for Preller and, and for Tingler, obviously coming in uh, and having this great roster to work with. But, you know, he's he's been um, as expected. Uh, Preller doesn't give away a lot as a GM. I think Tingler does uh, practice a similar approach as a manager, but the players seem to really enjoy, you know, uh, playing for him, that he um, kind of gets down on the trenches with them and uh, doesn't act like he's the smartest guy in the room, which some people accuse Green of, although I think some of that's overblown. But uh, Tingler's been, I guess, uh, very exactly what Preller was looking for. I think there was, you know, some school of thought that 
when Preller was hired in 2014, uh, he wanted to make Tingler the manager within a year or so. So this is just, I guess, coming a few years late. And it's uh, it's been a realization of that plan finally for, for AJ. And there's been, uh, I think, a lot of, I don't know the word, synergy between those two. So yeah, the players seem to realize that the GM and the manager are on the same page now. All right. Well, we have talked about this roster and its strengths. So now we will culminate with the question about how many games they will win as they go up against the big bad Dodgers. I think I saw a projection the other day about like 92 and the Dodgers were in the 110s, (laughs) which... um, (laughs) I mean, I could, I guess I could see that happening. Yeah, I'm going to go with 94 wins. Yeah, it just seems like a nice, uh, nice middle ground for a team that some people are saying is going to win 100. I think there's, there's some health questions, especially in the rotation. Darvish, Snell, and Joe Musgrove have all had some relatively recent injuries. And with Denelson Lamette possibly not being available for the full season, that's going to be a big question mark. So I think. Their depth is not quite to the point of the Dodgers just yet. Although I do think that if at the trade deadline, they really need a piece, Preller is going to be the last GM to hesitate about it. So I think uh, they're going to, they're definitely going to be in the mid nineties or the, the, the low nineties, at least that's my prediction. And I think uh, there's a good chance that they, they push the Dodgers for a good part of the season. I just think the Dodgers are too deep at this point to, uh, to give it the division just yet. Can I ask on a, a personal level, you joined the beat in 2014, right? Which was right before Preller was hired. He was hired that summer in August. And so you've seen it all. <laughs> you've really seen a, the transformation of the Padres. And when you started covering this team, this was uh, one of the lower profile teams in baseball. Now it's kind of the consensus most fun team there is. And I wonder, A, how that has affected the way that you do the job or the enjoyment you get out of it. And also just in terms of the challenge, I mean, there must be so many interesting stories to tell about this team, but also the way it's put together. I was looking at the roster resource breakdown of the roster and I think the Padres have two homegrown players the way that Jason Martinez characterizes that, which ties them for the fewest with the Marlins, I believe, and then 16 players on their projected 26 men acquired via trade, which is, uh, I think, the most. So you are dealing with a lot of new faces coming and going, which uh, I guess is probably a challenge for the Padres to make that clubhouse gel, but also for you to get to know all of these new players who are constantly cycling in and out. And AJ Preller does not hesitate to make major moves on holidays or late nights or weekends. So it seems like you could probably never really relax, but maybe that's been a fun challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think yes to all of that. The transaction standpoint has certainly made things more interesting and I guess easier <laughs> from uh, from a work standpoint. Um, and because even when uh, even when they were bad, you know, Preller was making making moves, and in 2015 yeah. he obviously went for it. That was interesting to cover. But I, I think just on a on a general level, yeah, yeah, I think um, you, you just want interesting stories, right? So the Potters definitely have that now, especially now that they're supposedly going to be pretty good. So that that makes it easier as well. But yeah, I think all the stories that you hear about Patriot Preller not really sleeping are mostly true. I think he <laughs> he stops every once in a while to eat a salad or do something like that, but. Um, there's not a lot of sustenance in his daily life. It's just baseball, 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 and uh, some pickup hoops, which I understand even at the age of 43, he's still very good at, even with uh, you know some minor injuries himself. So, yeah, that's that's all you can ask for as a beat writer, right? Just that your your team does interesting things and tries, and it seems like the Padres are certainly trying right now. So that's I guess it was a long time coming, um, but they mm-hmm. they had this plan in mind, and I guess credit to them for appearing to follow through. 
Yep. All right. Well, Padres fans, I'm sure are happy to have this team and are also happy to have Dennis Lynn on the beat. So find him on Twitter at Dennis T. Lynn and, of course, at The Athletic. Thank you, as always, Dennis. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Meg. All right. We'll take one more quick break and we'll be right back to talk to Nick Broke about the Colorado Rockies. are back and it is time to talk about the Colorado Rockies and even though the Rockies didn't make many additions this winter we have a lot to talk about as it turns out in part because of our guest today Nick Groke who covers the Rockies for The Athletic. Hello Nick. Hey how are you? We're doing well so you sort of won the week. (laughs) You uh produced probably one of the most widely shared and discussed stories, you along with Ken Rosenthal. You did a deep dive on the Rockies organization, and usually we focus on the team on the field, and we will get to that, but reading your story, the impression I get is that the team on the field may be a little less important when it comes to the Rockies' fortunes, both now and in the future, because as long as the people putting that team on the field are operating in the way that they're operating, I don't know that the Rockies will have an easy time of it. So I want to just ask a little bit about the process for this story, a long-form feature like this where you and Ken talk to more than 35 current and former Rockies players and staffers, rival officials, and others in the industry. So how did you conceive this piece? How did you and Ken split it up? And how willing did you find people to talk about the Rockies? It's funny that you ask because honestly, I don't know how we did it. I mean, I know how we did it, but uh, we it wasn't um, you know talking about it might not sound all that all that planned out, but it it was planned out, and it's been a long time in the making. Really, especially over the last year, more than a year, basically since the Rockies general manager Jeff Breidich entered into something like a cold war with Nolan Arenado that that spilled into the public, and there were a lot of questions like how you know what you you just signed perhaps the best player in franchise history and all of a sudden you're at war with him like what what is this all about there were it, it just opened up a thousand questions and so a lot of the reporting went back then but then since the trade which even if Arnado's trade seemed inevitable it still was pretty jarring when it happened since then then it really ramped up as, as far as how Ken and I worked it out it was really more um we we, we really weren't even stepping on each other's toes at all mm-hmm. you go that way I'll go this way kind of thing yeah. and Probably pretty handy to have Ken Rosenthal on your staff, I would imagine, one of the, the longer contact lists in baseball. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Ken's, Ken's fantastic in every way. But, you know, what's what's funny about the story, and since you asked, if, and if you don't mind me saying, is it, uh, funny. It's not funny. It's, it's unique for this story. Um, a couple of things. In a lot of ways, and this is a reaction that I think I've gotten from a lot of readers, is that none of it was especially surprising to Rockies fans, mm-hmm. but it was it was still again nonetheless sort of jarring to see it all in place like that. Right, and also you know when you if you break down the elements to the story, the things that the Rockies have messed up. To be frank, each individual thing is not totally unique. Like teams do dumb stuff all the time. The players get traded and they and they have bad feelings about it. That happens regularly. Like that's not especially unique. But the chore that we had that Ken and I had with this was. Essentially, having having to bludgeon all of those individual parts into one whole, um, because when you when you put together all of the things that they've messed up, 
even if one individual thing is not that big a deal, collectively, it's a huge deal. You know, it, it really, it really sort of informs the idea that this, that this team is very off track. So our chore was really one of quantity. And I, I, I don't mean to speak for Ken in any way, but to me, it was more like we, we had to collect so much in order to make it absolutely clear that this team is off track. And mm-hmm. that, that was sort of that. I think that was kind of in part how we were pushed into that story a little bit. Right. Yeah. We've talked to 33 people now who said the Rockies <laughs> have <laughs> messed up in many ways, but let's get a few more just, just to really nail it down. Right. And there were, you know, and obviously there were like a lot of different angles, not, you know, th- you know, 30, mm-hmm. 35 people didn't speak to every single thing that was in that story, but everybody, everybody was able to speak. Basically everybody was able to speak to at least one, if not more things that are in that story. So yeah, I mean, yeah, when you when you have a collective a collection of things that are that are hopefully that thorough you know it, it ends up painting a clearer picture is, was was our hope i think you're right to say that individual elements of the dysfunction in colorado are not unique to colorado like you said we see them in other orgs you know they manifest themselves even in good orgs right where a guy will get traded or there'll be a bad signing or there's a misevaluation or a player who develops after he's left the organization and sort of reaches a new level then but i think if i were a rockies fan the part of this that i would find the most concerning is how central the current ownership seems to be to much of that dysfunction. And so I guess the question, and my uh, my mom's family's from Colorado, my grandparents are Rockies fans. So for my grandpa, tell me, is there is there hope for this organization being able to retool or reposition itself under the current ownership that it has? Or is this the sort of thing where a more fundamental change might be necessary to change things up and sort of advance this franchise into the future? Well, I don't mind uh, injecting my opinion here, but just from an ob- objectively at this point, we are talking about a team who has never won their division. They reached the World Series once. It was incredible. They caught lightning in a bottle that year in 2007. You know, they probably, and I think even players on that team will, will tell you that they probably played over their heads, that they probably weren't exactly a World Series roster, but they, they caught, it was an incredible run. That's why the Rocktober of 2007 was so special because it was really incredible. But other than other than that, this is a team that regularly finishes with a losing record and has never won their division. And then more recently, with specifically with the leadership group that is currently in place, which is really two-headed owner Dick Monfort and then general manager Jeff Breidich, it really goes back to 2015. So we can also look to their more recent past with the last five, six years and see that they, in that window even, they're not doing especially well. Now, now when you talk to when you when I talk to or when people when other people talk to Monfort or Breidich, but especially Monfort, he's very keen on pointing out that hey, we went to the playoffs twice in a row. We did really well. Those are the things that he says. Now, my counter to that would be, well, you still only won one game, one wild card game in those two appearances. You you lost four other games. And then you immediately went from a from being a playoff team to two deep losing seasons, a 71 win season and the equivalent of a 70 win season. To me, it's almost worse that they very quickly turned a playoff team into a deep losing team. I don't think that three years later, pointing out that you went to the playoffs twice in a row, which they had never done before as a franchise. To me, now three years later, pointing that out is not like that doesn't ring real, real strong to me. To be honest, as a, as a justification for for what they're currently doing as a as a team, so to to Grandpa Growler, like 
you know, <laughs> is there any hope for turning it around? Like, here's me injecting my opinion. I would say no, not at least not quickly. They have a lot of problems. <laughs> they, they're stuck completely directionless at this point. They have no clear plan what to do with Trevor Story. They have no clear plan of what to do when they don't have Trevor Story, which is coming very quickly. There's not really, you know, teams talk about having a five-year plan. I, I really question whether they have a one-year plan at this point. So whether or not the current group that is in control of the Rockies can turn it around, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I really don't know. But it, it would take something that is unforeseen right now to turn them around in the near future. Yeah, and there are a lot of dismaying aspects to this story for Rockies fans probably. Again, as you mentioned, they're probably aware, but just to see it laid out like this. And as others have pointed out in response to your story, David Roth, among others, the Rockies seem to be bad in almost an old school way that is kind of unusual in today's game. I mean, there are plenty of bad teams but the lack of a apparent process or plan. There are other teams that sort of decide to be bad for a while in the interest of hopefully getting good again. With the Rockies, it, it doesn't even seem as if there is really that sort of intent. It's just kind of being bad in a not really directed way. The thing that stands out, at least most obviously, because you have a whole table devoted to it in your story, is the incredible lack of success with free agent signings under Jeff Breidich. And I was aware of this, but the figures are truly astonishing here. $303 million spent on free agents who have collectively produced negative 3.4 fan graphs were during their time with the Rockies. I mean, that is hard to do. <laughs> that is like if you threw a, a dart at the list of free agents, you should probably do better than that. So... I don't know if that's just like, you know, hire more analytics people, hire any analytics people <laughs> at this point or what, but to go that wrong at the same time, like the Rockies have spent some money, which is good. Like if, if it would be directed in just like a, a non-sub replacement level way, then that would be a way for them to improve. And you would hope that the lesson they would take from this is, well, let's keep spending, but let's spend more efficiently. Let's pick some players who will actually produce positive on-field value. I wonder whether the lesson might be, let's stop spending on free agents altogether because it's not working out for us. And that sort of seems to be what happened this offseason, although that might be pandemic related more so than, boy, we are really bad at signing free agents. Yeah. Although, you know, their spending freeze, and this was, <laughs> this goes to a big part of why Nolan Arenado ended up so disgusted with the team. It really started like two years ago. So they didn't spend, they barely spent two years, two winters ago, and then they didn't really at all last winter. And then they definitely didn't this winter. So, you know, the pandemic reasons I, I don't completely buy. Obviously it's affecting every team and it's affecting the Rockies too, but they were not spending before the pandemic either immediately. But a couple of things I'm really glad you mentioned. A couple of things. First of all, I'm really thankful for the shift click function on fan graphs to to um to group multiple years for players uh which which yes that really helps eliminate rounding errors on on total war accumulation but to that to the chart that you mentioned i also considered sort of making a, a similar graph table for their the history of trades under jeff reinich but there really aren't any i mean there are really very few you so we just mentioned them in the story they have i think one good trade with under jeff reinich it was sending Corey dickerson to tampa for hamron marquez and jake mcgee 
it was a, it turned out to be a really good trade. Their other trades are all kind of nothing. The two, the only other two notable trades are really the, the Tulo trade and the Arenado trade. And the Tulo trade ended up netting them very little in return. And we can, I mean, we can parse out the details of the savings that they, that, you know, if that was a savings trade, a money savings trade or not. And we can do that with Arenado too, but it's kind of irrelevant. They really have not made trades either. So if you're, if they're going to just sort of stop signing free agents and they don't have a history of making productive trades either. I don't, there's not a whole lot left, like except the draft. And they've done okay in the draft. Uh, you know, Charlie Blackman was a draft pick. Arnado was a draft pick, Trevor Story. But, you know, what we've learned, I mean, we, I think we've learned this to be very clear in baseball. Like you cannot just, this isn't the NFL or the NBA. You can't just draft your way into a winning team. There are too many, there are way too many variables in roster building and minor league development to to count on that. So like, you know, if, if you're not if you're not doing anything in free agency and you're not doing anything by trade, then there's not a whole lot left. But, you know, again, this and and I'm glad you mentioned it too and I hope this came through in Ken and I's story and and David did a really good job with this on the defector too was that the Rockies are not the Orioles, they're not the Pirates. They're, this is not an intentional like teardown or rebuild. This is not like a McKinsey Astros efficiency rebuild thing. This isn't 20 teens MLB <laughs> roster construction. This is like very 1990s baseball. Mm-hmm. Like the Rockies, yeah. the Rockies are, are still like very much in the 90s. Like, and their mistakes are very old old timey. It's kind of it's like in a way, it's like weirdly comforting that that like this still exists. In baseball, not not certainly not comforting to Rockies fans, but it's like almost kind of to nice. their opponents, <laughs> right? Right. It's almost kind of nice that there's this, like this thread mm-hmm. to old timey baseball still. But you know, because you know, I think if we've learned anything, if you submit yourself to an intentional rebuild, that is absolutely not a guarantee for success. And if you come out the other side not having any kind of legitimate like playoff success, then you ruined five years for nothing. How depressing is that? Like, you know, sometimes I wonder if that's worse than how the Rockies are stuck in their own mud. I really don't know which one would be worse, but the Rockies are going at this point really year to year and just sort of kind of kicking the can down the road um, on a lot of their issues. And it's just, you know, what is unique about them? And I've had to look, I've had to expand my my eyes, my scope to see if there's any kind of parallel even in other sports. But at least in baseball, I don't see a parallel to how the Rockies are doing this in an old timey way right now in baseball. I I don't, I think they're, they're unique in that way. And I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's like an, an analogy in the NHL or, you know, I don't know if like the Cleveland Browns are some kind of like comparison. I really don't know enough about the front offices and other sports to know if there's a, a parallel, but there is something unique about how the Rockies are screwing up right now, which is interesting to me anyways. So you can't fire the owner. And as you said, that sort of takes some of the hope out of the situation, the path to improving this. But do you think there's any evidence that Monfort, that Breidich have the capacity for self-reflection, self-evaluation, I don't know whether they read your article. I'm sure they're very aware of it, at least if they're seeing person after person say these things. Do you think that that gets through or do they just hunker down and discount the critics and we're not even going to entertain the notion that we're doing something wrong here? I mean, might another unsuccessful season perhaps hammer home that they need some sort of plan and 
if they do develop one, is this an organization that people would want to work for? <laughs> After reading this article, I can't say that the top baseball operations talent will be lining up to work for the Rockies, but it does seem like they need enough people to provide the information that other teams are providing to their players and to their leadership and not also making them work as clubhouse attendants. I mean, is there any way that they might sort of reflect and without just stepping down or handing over control completely say, okay, we recognize that we need to do things differently because that has seemed to be kind of a consistent quality where Monfort, I don't know whether it is denial or whether he genuinely believes these things or whether he is just trying to put a positive spin on things. But it always seems as if he thinks that the team can compete and then it usually doesn't. And I don't know whether he then says, oh, I guess I was wrong about that or whether he thinks like, well, the players just need to do better, but they're the same players as before. Yeah. First of all, if if they need an article to explain their problems to them, then that's a problem. Um, that's a problem in itself. But and I hope this came through too in the article. It, it's it's definitely something that shined through when we talked to other front office people around the league. Their impression of the Rockies, and I think this is very accurate. And they, the Rockies, disagree with this, but this is certainly their reputation in the league that they exist on an island, that they're in a bubble, um, that they're in their own bubble, and they kind of don't see. They're sort of not able to see the forest for the trees. And when this has been brought up. With, for instance, Dick Montfort, you know, he'll say, you know, well, yeah, but, you know, Dan O'Dowd came from Cleveland. You know, we weren't totally insular on that one. And it's like, well, true, but you've only had three GMs. So you just mentioned one of three. And Jeff Breidich started with the Rockies almost 20 years ago. So he's been with the team this long, even though he's been GM only for six. His staff is almost all basically homegrown. All all of them sort of work their way up. There are very there are very few outside voices with the Rockies, and it seems though that even though Dick Monfort is active in some owner committees, that he kind of this is my impression. You know, this is just me injecting here, but it's my impression that he just sort of doesn't have a lot of input from outside the team. Either he's not interested in it, or he just doesn't have access to it. He just it, sometimes it seems like he doesn't have anyone to give him a context for where his team is at. Now, I would have, I would guess, like Jeff Breidich is certainly smart. He knows baseball. I would imagine that he is a lot more aware of those things. But together, the two of them together, they sort of become one at some point. And, you know, whatever they're doing to self-justify the paths that they've been on, it's been enough, that justification has been enough to keep them going on on these sort of errant paths. So, I, I wouldn't foresee any any changes. Now, after the Arenado trade, you know, somebody asked him if he'd ever considered firing Jeff Breidich, and he said, no, I haven't at all. I've considered firing myself. And I, now he said that slightly jokingly, I think. Um, but um, but he's he sort of like, I can't, I really can't tell if that was some self-awareness or not. But the key to that was that he had not considered at all a change as general manager. And again, this was in the story, you know, their last general manager, Dan O'Dowd, he wasn't fired. He left. Their last manager, Walt Weiss, he was not fired. He left. He kind of got fed up <laughs> and left. The manager before him, Jim Tracy, also wasn't fired. He left. There's a pattern of people who work for the team who just sort of have had enough and just left. But there is not a pattern. There's not any any evidence or recent evidence of them making wholesale changes in any way internally. So again, I think that's just 
proves a pattern that we can, you know, extrapolate to how they'll act here in the near future. There's just probably not going to be any major changes unless somebody just decides I've, I've had enough. Well, I think we'll, we'll transition to some of the results on the field, lest the Rockies fans listening offer themselves as sacrifices to Dinger, <laughs> although I don't know that that's... <laughs> <laughs> going to improve their moods all that much. But I guess that maybe we can start with a, a relative bright spot and talk about Herman Marquez, who you mentioned is sort of one of the, the good trades that they've had and certainly the ace of their staff. And there was a brief period when the Rockies were good where they were really being led by their pitching and they've seen some regression from some of the guys who we could point to as part of that good 2018 staff. But Marquez has done well. He, you know, he had a bit of a regression from 2018 in his 2019 season, but his short season in 2020 was very impressive, particularly when you consider the environs of Coors. So I'm curious sort of how he course corrected from 2019 and then what your expectations are for him this year and whether you expect that he will remain a Rocky. He's under contract until 2023, but I don't know what will be left of the team <laughs> uh, by then. So do you expect that he will stay in in Denver or that he will get shipped off at some point? Well, yeah, you know, I, I have to argue back on, on Marquez a little bit because a lot of times, you know, people will see the ERA of a Rockies pitcher and kind of dismiss him. But he would be a very clear all-star on any other team. Like yeah. He's, he is a legitimately good pitcher. Yep. He's probably like, I don't know how big the tiers would be, but he's probably like the second tier of pitchers in, in major league baseball. Well, not on a Garrett Cole level, but, but like right behind kind of like he really is that good. And yeah, no, he hasn't really shown a whole lot of regression. He, his pitching style suits him well inside and out of course field he can get a strikeout but he also forces a lot of ground balls he's really he's really well made for the rockies and but you know before we get to whether or not he's long long for the rockies you know the the regressions that they had for some pitchers i mean we'll just let's just mention kyle freeland like he definitely fell off after his sort of cy young chase from 2018 but he, he rebounded very well last year he's one of the more improved pitchers overall in baseball last year he really seemed to have found himself he now has a shoulder injury so he's going to miss at least a month but they at least have him available at some point this season probably so they really do have a good pitcher that you know an austin gomber who came from the from the cardinals in the arenado trade has looked really good in spring um he's a curious case just because he's a fly ball pitcher i'm like I, i'm really curious to see how he works at coors field but their rotation is is good. Like I, I mean, I don't really. I'm not wearing some kind of purple tinted glasses when I say it. I think their rotation is is legitimately good. But how long can they be good is like a, is a really good question. And with Marquez, you know, I, I think I can answer that best. Is he long for this team? By again, just reminding us that we're talking about the Rockies here. So now, if you were talking about the Rays, he would be a very obvious way for them to spin forward in a trade, like trade him for three other players who can who can improve your team or whatever try to try to leverage him for for something more down the line but the rockies are not the rays they just don't do that they really don't do that and they have made no indication that they have any interest in trading him on marquez they're getting asked about it from other teams constantly he's probably the most asked for player in trade not probably he is <laughs> but but it's just like they have not bid on it so far and now would be the time i mean they're going nowhere at this point but they held on. They held on to John Gray. Um, now, now John Gray's in his contract year. Um, Trevor Story's in his contract year. Like they, you know, they just don't have a habit of of trading players before it's too late. Like it's just like how they how they do things. 
Um, they even had an opportunity at one point to possibly trade for JT Realmuto, and they said no because they wanted to hold on to Brendan Rodgers. There was another trade at the 2018 deadline that would have been a forward-thinking trade. I don't, I can't tell you who was involved because I don't know, but Dick Monfort has talked about it that it would have netted them somebody, some kind of prospect that could have helped them for years, but they said no. Um, he was the one who said no to that idea. They just don't do that. They just don't do trades like that. So no, I don't I don't think Marquez is headed anywhere. Now, if they realize the wild card here though, is that maybe again, to your earlier question, like maybe they start to realize that they're very, very stuck. And, you know, and maybe that sort of propels them to, to start trading some players. But they have said in the past that they just, they do not do rebuilds. And they are very reluctant to trade anyone that they've developed. I'm not losing sleep checking Twitter about any kind of Herman Marquez news. Um, I'm not. I'm not checking my my text messages at all about any any kind of hint that that Herman Marquez is on the go. After your story this week, I don't think anyone will accuse you of wearing purple tinted glasses anytime soon, probably. <laughs> so I think you're in the clear there. You mentioned Gray. Last season was rough for him. I know he had shoulder problems. And when he was pitching, he was clearly diminished in his effectiveness. So is the hope that he is fully healthy now and back to being his old self? Not that it was ever entirely clear what his self was. It always seemed like his self should maybe be a little bit better than it was, although he was quite effective at times, especially for a pitcher in Coors Field and the mixture of ground balls and strikeouts always tantalizing. So how has he looked? In spring, he's looked real well. There was a lot of concern last year. His velocity was way down. It was not a slight like dip at all. It was way down. And it was not a surprising that he ended up with a shoulder injury. His velo is way back now. His, it, it's definitely back this spring. Now, we're going to need to see that play out over the long term this season. But it seems at least he's back to being able to throw hard, which is a big part of his game. And he really works, you know, sort of fastball slider. And he has, you know, he has some other pitches, but he really works fastball slider. And and it's been effective for him. Now, like, again, if John Gray hasn't been maybe the kind of sort of elite pitcher that they were hoping for, I, I do have to remind myself, he if this is his final year in Colorado, he will go down as one of the their better pitchers ever. I mean, his his statistics have have bore this have borne this out. Now I think it would be very helpful for the Rockies, even having just said that they don't make a lot of trades. I think it would be very helpful for John Gray to pitch really well over the first couple of months because it would make him a very attractive trade target at the deadline. They could really use that. Now, I don't know if they would pull the trigger, but again, they've made no indication that they are that they want to sign him long term. It seems like if they wanted that, that it would have been done by now. And if I'm John Gray to become, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for anybody, but if I was his agent, I would, you know, maybe be nudging him to see how well his career can take him outside of, of course, field. So it seems to me that he, he would be an obvious sort of trade candidate at some point this year because he's a free agent at the end of the year. But I think teams, teams are going to need to see how he works out over the first, at least first couple of months. But in spring, he, he is looking like old John Gray, at least. I want to ask about another oft-injured member of the Rockies, albeit one earlier in his career, who's going to miss at least a month, right, is Brendan Rodgers, who dinged up his hamstring in a way that I was watching that game, and you saw him pull up and you were just like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious, setting aside even the injuries, what the team really expects of him at this point. He was a consistently high, highly regarded prospect, but he's you know, had this 
sort of continual pull of injury and then what little big league opportunity he's had so far has not gone particularly well. So what is the prognosis, I guess, most immediately for his injury? And then what do you expect from him long term? The, the injury doesn't seem to be too serious. Um, they were hoping that it, they, they were hoping that at first that it wasn't at all serious. It turned out to be slightly serious, but then it doesn't seem to be more than a month serious, they hope at this point. But leg hamstring injuries are really naggy and, you know, who knows. But what's a bummer for, for them and especially for, for Rodgers is that, I mean, he finally had a very clear job. Like he was going to be the second baseman. He was going to be the full-time second baseman or at least the primary second baseman. You know, he came up as a shortstop. Not only was he blocked by Trevor Story, it, he just sort of plays better as a second baseman or a third baseman. His arm is maybe not as as strong as Trevor Story's. He, he just kind of profiles a little bit better. Now, his lack of playing time to this point is for a couple of reasons. They were trying to win. They were They were sort of urgently trying to win the last few seasons, even though they didn't at all. But his defense was lacking to the point where they couldn't exactly afford to have him in the middle of the infield. So his playing time was was not real regular. And then it, it really he really ended up kind of struggling at the plate. Like even his hits, like a lot of them were he didn't put a lot of balls past the infield, to be totally honest. Um, he hasn't had a lot of wow moments. I don't think he's I haven't really seen any wow moments for him so far, but his time has been very brief. So I mean it, it's definitely not something that they should freak out about, but it is a Bummer. I mean, it's a bummer for them that now was the time for him to really stretch out. And he was playing well in spring. Um, his defense had improved. He was hitting the ball hard, even if it wasn't necessarily like over the fence. He was hitting. He was hitting the ball very hard. I mean, all good signs out of spring. But now they're going to have to wait a little bit longer for for him to to really prove himself. But when they made the Arenado trade, they did it knowing that that they could very easily slot Ryan McMahon to third base and Brendan Rodgers to, to second base. And they had it all set out, and, that, and now they're going to have to adjust again. So um, there are a lot of things kind of on hold with the team, a lot of dominoes that they sort of stacked back up with Rodgers' injury. So they're going to have to let that one – they're going to have to figure that one out a little bit later. Yeah, so the offense was really a problem last year. I mean, usually you have to do park adjustments to reveal that the Rockies' offense is not great. Last year, you did not even have to do that because even the surface stats were not good. And now Arnado's not there. Of course, he was not his usual self on offense last year either. But is there anyone you can point to as this guy's a bounce-back candidate, this guy is a breakout candidate, someone who could potentially prop up that offense? You've got Charlie Blackman, who's coming off a, a down year at the plate, and we've talked a little bit about McMahon. I mean, is there someone could Tapia hit for more power? I know that there's a, a bit of a first base battle, so maybe we can touch on that too, but... Where is the offense going to come from aside from Trevor Story, if anywhere? Yeah, it's funny. A lot of times you do have to look for adjusted stats on the Rockies. Um, but if they're not if they're not in the top five in baseball and run scored, then something's wrong, generally. Yeah. Um, I think that's like kind of fair. Like they should be scoring a lot of runs, period, just because of of where they play. You know, we do the same with with pitchers. We sort of you can kind of wave away some of their higher ERA. It's just because more runs are scored at Coors Field. But so if their offense isn't scoring runs among the highest run scoring teams in the league, then something's wrong, and that's been a problem. Really, the problem is contact. They, they don't make a lot of contact overall. Now you're right. Like they they also have not been hitting for power recently. Some of their overall team power numbers last year were you can kind of take that a little bit with Arenado's injury. Adult year last year, 
but they really, you know, beyond him and Story and, and Charlie Blackman, they don't hit for power. So they're going to have to piece together an offense. The power that they're looking for is will come, they hope, from CJ Crone at first base. And he, like like Rogers, was hitting the is hitting the ball very hard this spring, which is a good sign. He can take advantage of right field at Coors Field, I think, or not right field, but at least the gaps. Like if if he's able to hit the ball hard, he can really take advantage of some gaps at Coors Field. So they're hoping for power from him, and you know, as an addition, like I think you can kind of assume that they're going to get some power from Trevor Story and Charlie Blackman. But the the addition of power will come mostly from really mostly from CJ Chrome, which is not. He's not Nolan Arenado, so I don't I don't see how that how they add more power than they had before. But what they really need is contact, and they they need more contact. They need a higher on base percentage from Ryan McMahon, who can hit for power. Ryan McMahon is definitely a power hitter, but his his responsibility right now he needs to get on base more. They'll trade a little bit of power from Ryan McMahon to get him on base more. Same with Ryan Altapia. He he had a really good OBP like for a month last last season, and then he kind of faded. Uh, but he's going to be the leadoff. He needs to get on base. He's very, he doesn't, he's not a great base dealer, but he's really quick, like first to third. So he needs to get, he really needs to get on base. But so as far as like a offensive additions beyond Ryan McMahon and Ryan Maltapia and CJ Crone, like that's kind of it. Their best, I mean, really kind of like their best hitter over the last month, last season was Josh Fuentes, Nolan Arenado's cousin who, who, who took over first base from Daniel Murphy. And he was a really good defender. And he just sort of like, he's a very aggressive hitter. He's a little wild at the plate, but he just was like getting hit. He just kept getting hits. They've pumped the brakes on him, which is a little curious this spring. I think, I think because they wanted someone with, with a little more veteran presence and Chrome, but he, he could be a wild card sort of addition offensively for them as well. But um, they need, you know, usually the Rockies are counting on, bounce backs they need a whole bunch of bounce backs and a whole bunch of <laughs> i mean what do you what do you call it when, when somebody's like not a bounce back but even an, arri- an arrival they need a lot more arrivals too <laughs> they need all the players who've been bad to, to be, be good, good. That, yeah. that's it <laughs> well you mentioned blackman so maybe we can talk about him i i mean first of all just what you saw go wrong for him last year. I mean, if you're unfamiliar with cores, you'd look at his superficial stats and say, well, he hit for less power, but like this looks like a productive uh, big leaguer. But then of course, when you park adjusted, you realize that he was a bit below average. So I'm curious what went wrong. And then as sort of a, you know, he's been with the Rockies in the big league since 2011, sort of how he has reacted this spring as the kind of con- continual degradation of his organization is made apparent to the world. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would really like to get Charlie drunk. I don't even know if he drinks, but I would really like to get him drunk and see what he really has to say. But because he's been sort of trotted out this spring as as the voice of the team. And I don't know if, if Charlie Blackman is totally suited for that role. He's just like so he's just like so laser focused and routine oriented. It's hard for him to sort of look outside what he is doing in the moment. Um, I'm not, that is not me saying at all that he's selfish in any way. He's just like, that's why he's good at baseball um, is that he just knows exactly what he needs to do at any given moment to be good at, at baseball. And that, that generally doesn't include being a spokesperson, but his, his year last year, I I think, I think it's fair to just call that a, a pandemic season. I mean, he was flirting with 500 at one point, like, like not even like not even hitting 400, but he was flirting with 500 at one point. And then he really faded fast, but he, he had like a, he had a bummer year. He, he was quarantined 
like right before the season. So his whole his whole summer training camp was delayed. A lot of his routine was taken away from him from different protocols that were installed for safety. Um, he wasn't able to do a lot of the video work he normally does. A lot of like pregame like batting practice that he that he likes to do was was not available to him either. So he he like really I, I think he really you know got kind of got thrown for a loop. And even though he started so well, I think it just kind of eventually caught up to him. So. I expect him to be more Charlie Blackman like this year. You know, he's he's getting on in age, but I've talked to him about this before. His career was delayed to start with some sort of weird injuries. He had a staph infection at one point real early in his career, so his sort of playing time was real limited early on. And I and I do kind of wonder, maybe this is like like attaching too much of a boxing sort of analogy here, but I kind of wonder if his legs were saved a little bit because he was so limited early on. I, I, I don't know, but I don't think he's shown a lot of age regression yet, but we'll have to see. The one thing that like hampers, not hampers Charlie Blackman, but he just always, they're always asking him to do something. Every year they're asking him to do something different. Like if you can, re- if we can remember, like he was a great base stealer at one point, <laughs> like he was a base stealing leadoff center fielder. And then he sort of changed himself to be sort of more a power hitting kind of leadoff center fielder. And then, and then they wanted him to play right field. And then they, they moved him down to be, uh, you know, more of an RBI type slugger in, in like the third or fourth spot in the lineup. Like they keep asking him to do different stuff. This year they're asking him to be almost like a field, a field coach. Like they really want him to help develop younger players. And again, like, He's got, he has his own stuff to worry about. Like he's very, it seems like he's very willing to do this and, and he's definitely like a team, a team focused person. Uh, but in the end, he has to worry about him, himself, like what he's doing at the plate and what he's doing in right field. So I'm curious to see how he sort of adapts to another new role this year. Um, I'm very curious to see how his season plays out. Now, like numbers wise, I don't know. I, I think what we've seen numbers wise or at least as as the type of hitter he is, I think that's what Charlie Blackman's going to continue to be, which is somebody who can extend in that bat, who can hit for some power. He's not gonna, he's not a base dealer anymore. He's he's definitely not a slap hitter, but he he makes a lot of contact. Like he's a very studied hitter, and I think that's what's will probably propel him through the rest of his career. Do you think that we will see a Trevor Story trade this season or will they just let him leave and take the draft pick or will they extend him? Not that they've made a a great advertisement for their organization lately. I just wonder, maybe given recent events, whether they might just be kind of better off taking the comp pick than whatever they would do otherwise. I don't know what they think, but they're not extending him. Period. Like, like, let's just mm-hmm. knock that off. Like, he's he's been around to see Tulowitzki traded and Arnado traded. Like, he's he knows exactly what it means to sign a big contract and then just get marginalized immediately. So, like, I I think we can just scratch that one off right away. Now, a trade would have made a whole lot more sense <laughs> last month. Like, I don't know why. You know, I don't know why they're if they're interested in trading him. I don't know why they're waiting. If I had to put money on it. I'm not a betting person. I'm not going to bet on this, but I would, you know, if, if I was placing odds on it, it would be that they let him play out the season and just take a draft pick, which is probably not the smartest way to go about it. But I, that's what they seem to want to do. I think they're they're very aware that they're very aware of of the perception that they've given after they traded Nolan Arnato. They're not going to do it again with Trevor Story, 
And again, like they just don't make trades and they haven't been good at making trades. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it is best to just take the draft pick. If they're going to trade for a package that doesn't really help them, maybe they're better off just taking a second rounder out of it. I mean, if I was a fan listening right now, I would be completely depressed by that idea. But like maybe that's just how it's going to be. But it's possible that his value is such at the deadline that that a team in contention could really use a bat like his and are and is willing to overpay like that like that's probably the best case scenario for the Rockies but again this is just a guess it was just like they'd have to be they would almost have to be forced into it like some they would ha- it would have to be something that they just absolutely could not say no to i think to make that happen well maybe we'll leave Rockies fans with a feel good story about coming back and redemption and rising above. Tell us about Daniel Bard because Daniel Bard's player page is perhaps my favorite at Fangraphs because it's not often you see a seven-year gap (laughs) between a guy's most recent stat line and the one before that. I know that you've written about him extensively and he was something of a story last year given his return and then his his great success. But for, for those folks who maybe tuned out the Rockies, how did he do this? How did he go from being a guy with the yips and a nine ERA in Boston in 2013 to a 3.65 ERA in Colorado in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I I, was, I seriously cannot get enough of Daniel Bard. I think it's <laughs> I, I think, uh, but like first of all, like selfishly, he's a great quote. You know, even even like post game, he's just like a great person to listen to talk about baseball. You know, I, I guess some of that was on. TV a little bit last year, but I don't. I hopefully like fans will be able to hear him speak about the game even more this year. I hope, but um, how he did it was incredible. Like how he came back was like really incredible. He really just, I mean, long story short, he just like kind of figured out that that he is good enough to be in baseball, and if it doesn't work for him, you know, if he if he blows a save or something, that it's okay. That that's okay. (laughs) You know, there. I mean, I don't know how else better to say it, but he just like he came to a mental space with the game where he really reckoned with what it means to to embrace the pressure not not try to push it out not not to ignore it not to try to make the fear of the game be some kind of enemy he really he really became friends with the fear and i mean it's really incredible how he looks on the mound now especially compared to how he used to he he still throws hard but he just like attacks the game in a much different way you'll see him like sometimes he'll pull a pitch and it's like not there and he'll kind of like you'll sort of see himself in the moment be like a little bit frustrated but he very quickly just absorbs it he's taking the pressure of being a reliever being a pitcher and now he's he's going to be their closer this year which so you know will be even more more so this year but it's like he almost has fun with he, he has fun with it now in a way that he didn't before and it's like a, just like a great lesson about how to be an athlete in the pressure of of a game or or you know whatever it is whatever sport we're talking about that that it's not it's like really unwise to to try to push out all of the negative things and all of the fear it's much better to recognize those things and become comfortable with those things and know that they're natural and then and you could just like perform better when you are more comfortable with with those kinds of feelings and He's a like at this point he's a master at it. I mean like he that really literally was his job like he was teaching other people how to do that and then eventually taught himself how to do that just sort of accidentally and it, it's really it's continually one of my one of my favorite things to see in baseball. 
right. Well, we have come to the part where we ask you for a win total prediction. So I'm guessing it's not going to be a Dick Montfort-esque 94 wins from you, but tell us how many games the Rockies will win in 2021. They won the equivalent of 70 last year with Nolan Arnauto, even though even though it was a down year. So, you know, I guess you have to like take a little bit off of that. I mean, I really, I mean, it, it could be anywhere in the, it could really be anywhere in the 60s. I don't know. I, do you know offhand what their over under is by chance? I think it's, it might be 63 and a half, maybe. I don't know. Um, don't don't look at it. Don't look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, this isn't necessary. I'm just delaying having to answer your actual question. I mean, um, <laughs> You know, the, they're, it seems like their pitching would have been able to carry them to a certain number of wins, even though they have to they have to pitch a course field. But if Kyle Freeland's not available for all of April, you know that that is definitely going to hurt. Off the hip, like you know, just shooting from the hip here, like I'm okay saying 64. I think. Well, you'll be happy to know that we project them for 64.8 wins at Fangraphs, dead last in the division. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe. You know what? Like, just I'm gonna I'm going to put on the purple tinted glasses at this point. I'm gonna say 65. Let's just go like very slightly over over the over the projection. I'm gonna go 65. Okay, well that changes everything. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, just briefly, this is uh, only tangentially Rockies related, but it it might be related to every team now as we head into the last year of the CBA. I was reading in Craig Calcaterra's newsletter earlier this week. He wrote, Dick Monfort is the chairman of Major League Baseball's Labor Policy Committee. He's actually the guy who will be in charge of the owner-slash-league-side negotiating team heading into labor talks with the players later this year. And, man, if I were the players looking at how he's run the Rockies, I guess I, I might be encouraged by the fact that he's going to be the one who is, uh, to some degree, in charge of MLB's negotiating strategy. But do you know if he is actually in that really authoritative position? And is he better at that than he is at his baseball team? He is in that position. And here's what I can tell you that I know. Just people in general, but players included, they they do like speaking with Dick Montfort. Like you can have a friendly conversation with him. So there's that. <laughs> people are not people are like not put off by him, which I guess is a bonus when you're doing a labor negotiation. Mm-hmm. But having reported out that story um, that came out this week, I mean, I just for that reason and a hundred other reasons, I think it's going to be a very messy year, if I had to guess. <laughs> All right. Well, you can follow along with Nick on Twitter at Nick Groke, and you can find him, of course, covering the Rockies at The Athletic, and we will link to the long piece from this week if you have not checked it out yet. Lots of anecdotes that we didn't even touch on here that would be perhaps eye-opening or at least confirm your eyes being open already. Thank you, Nick. Hey, thank you very much. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. We just have two more team preview podcasts to go. It'll be Yankees and Pirates next time, followed by Dodgers and Orioles, and then it will be opening day. So we will get those final four teams in before first pitch of the 2021 season. I was sad to see that Dr. Bobby Brown passed away this week. He died on Thursday at his home in Texas at age 96. And what a life he had, as many people have pointed out. He won five championships with the Yankees of the 40s and 50s. Good on base guy, high contact hitter. 
postseason hero with a 1,200 career OPS in October, which of course in those days was all in the World Series. Mostly a third baseman, but played all over the field. Good utility type. And really, that's just a small portion of his life. He served in the Navy during World War II, didn't see action, but then was in the military again during the Korean War. For a longer stretch, he became a cardiologist, which is why everyone calls him Dr. Bobby Brown. That and I guess to distinguish him from the singer Bobby Brown. But he studied to become a doctor while he was with the Yankees. He was the president of the Rangers for a while. He was the president of the American League for about a decade when that really meant something. League presidents had power in those days. And then he practiced cardiology for 30 years in the Dallas area. So really just a long, full, rich life. Condolences to his family and to his friends, and one of his best friends is Eddie Robinson, friend of the podcast. So I'm sorry for Eddie's loss. I know that he and Bobby Brown would see each other from time to time as they're both in the same area and obviously went way back. I do have some better news to report about Eddie, which is that he has gotten his vaccines. He is back in action. There was an article about him by Jared Diamond in the Wall Street Journal on Friday about how he had gotten vaccinated and had gone with Betty, his wife of 65 years, who was also on the podcast, by plane to Phoenix to attend a couple of Rangers spring training games. So Eddie is doing well, was back at the ballpark, and of course is continuing to host his podcast, The Golden Age of Baseball with Eddie Robinson, which I have quite enjoyed. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Rebecca Fleming, Matthew Hine, Frank Grafe, Randy Ackerman, and Claude Dion. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you early next week. Western Divide Toxic and proud To break a glass